This week on Technado, we've got tons of news and announcements out of the Microsoft Ignite conference. We also have more hacker activity and business email compromises. And finally, an interview with Professor Joe Welch of Central Texas College. Stay tuned because it's all starting right now. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of TechNado. I'm your host, Dom Pazette, joined today in studio by Mr. Justin Dennison. Justin, thanks for joining us. Uh, it's always great to be here. It's fun, but it feels a little roomier than normal. You know, it's like the shackles are off because we ditched PVR for the episode. We sure did. Mr. Peter Van Rysdem, who is uh, normally hosting for us here, is down in Orlando at Microsoft Ignite. So big, exciting conference uh, and actually, we're going to see a number of news stories this week are coming right out of that Microsoft Ignite conference. I don't want to like steal the thunder, though, because I know when Mike gets back and uh, Cherokee, uh, Peter, they're all, I mean, they're there on the scene. So they're going to come back with a lot of great news and information. But we do have a couple we want to touch on just because that's where the bulk of the exciting news is coming from. All right. Well, you know, enough beating around the bush. Let's go ahead and jump into our articles for the week. Our first one comes to us from Tom's Hardware. And good old Tom lets us know that Microsoft is bringing Edge to Linux, too. This is an announcement that came out of Ignite. Uh, we knew that the new Edge browser that was built upon the Chromium engine was coming out. And now they've announced that they're going to be releasing it on Linux as well. Uh, I, I can tell already, Justin, you're super excited, right? I, I, I can hardly contain myself. It's like I'm getting another Chrome. I'm wondering if I'm going to need double the amount of RAM, though, just to be able to run it. Well, you know what? Let's, let's take a completely scientific and statistically accurate poll right now. Uh, do you use Microsoft Edge? No. All right, neither do I. <laughs> so I think we've got, I mean, this is a proven fact. Nobody uses Edge, so yeah. literally nobody can. That's how generalizations across populations work. I need two verified answers. <laughs> and these are completely random, so this is statistically yeah. valid, right? Absolutely. I mean, 100% sample pool uh, is amazing. Yeah, I feel compelled uh, to say that's not true. But yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's funny, this this article, when you read it, I was like, Linux too? Oh, Linux also, so... I thought they had like their special version or something like that. I was <laughs> like, like Amazon Linux 2. Linux 2? <laughs> so they're bringing Edge and Linux? But no. Well, we'll see where this one goes. I know there's a lot of pushback in the open source community against Edge, but it's based on Chromium, which is open source, and Microsoft is really making some big pushes there. The last time Microsoft released one of their web browsers for another platform, it's in the article here somewhere, Oh, was the Mac version of Internet Explorer in 2003. And you see how well that one turned out. Uh, so we'll see if things go different this time. Who's to say? I didn't even know that was a thing. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's part of the reason why there's a Windows version of Safari, which is equally bad. Oh, yes, it was. I think they actually discontinued. They don't support it yeah, anymore. Yeah, yeah. They, I think they, they put it away on the shelf. Yeah, it, it's tough supporting a browser across multiple versions. And, uh, you know, you could... You could cheat and say, you know what, I'll do an Electron <laughs> browser, but then it's Chromium anyway. And you <laughs> yeah, might as well just yeah, keep running yeah. Chrome. We'll build it on Electron. Oh, so Chrome. <sighs> no, let's yeah. not do that. So. And it's not like you're even filling a niche need, like uh, because you already have Firefox and Chrome that run on all the different platforms, and those are kind of the market well, leaders. What do you think the reason for like pushing to it? Like, I want to bring Edge to Mac OS and to Linux. Is it just to get the Microsoft name in front of more people, or no? It. It is it is a proven thing that whoever controls the biggest market share of web browsers effectively controls the internet, right? Just look at AMP. 
AMP sucks. <laughs> and, and when you go and you, you know, browse the web on your phone, you get AMP links, which is because Google said everybody should have this. And because they control that browser market, they were able to do it. And websites have no option but to follow that. So if Microsoft can get in there, they can take that from Google. It makes them more competitive. And honestly, if I had to pick between companies to trust, I'd probably pick Microsoft over Google. So as of recently, I would probably, I never thought I would say this, I would probably agree with you as well. They seem to be a a little more forthcoming, a little more transparent nowadays than maybe they used to be. Uh, How does that play out since it's based on Chromium? Doesn't they just necessarily... How does that work? Uh, you know, it, well, it, it's based on Chromium as far as the rendering engine. It doesn't mean that it uses like Google's bookmark sync and all of that. Well, okay. you know, I say this, but that, that could all change because it's not officially released yet. This is still like part of the Windows Insider builds and you can download it from Microsoft. So it will be later on in 2020 before we actually see the commercial product. Right. Now, I think it said for uh, the Chromium based one, they're hoping January of 2020. Oh, and then the Linux one is going to be later in 2020. Now, that could all change because it's currently in release candidate mode. They may find something that goes, uh-oh. So just keep that in mind. Yep. Um, I know a couple of people in the office are running it because they're on insider builds. Seem to work all right. It's supposed to be like way less memory hungry than some of the other ones, but but we'll see. Uh, you know, that's probably not the most exciting thing to come out of Ignite. In fact, if you ask somebody from Microsoft, they'll tell you the most exciting announcement announcement is from our next article over at techradar.pro, uh, which is Azure Arc lets Microsoft Cloud run on AWS and Google Cloud. This is a pretty neat one. And I'll say I, it it it's not out yet. Right, so this is another one where the, they're making the promises right now, and the promises are pretty amazing. Uh, we know that there's a push right now for companies to go multi-cloud, where they deploy a solution not just on AWS, but on AWS and Azure or something like that for redundancy. And the biggest challenge is if I design a solution just for AWS, they have all sorts of bells and whistles I can take advantage of. If I deploy a solution just for Azure, they have all sorts of bells and whistles. But if I do a multi-cloud deployment, I've got to dumb my solution down to the least common denominator. Is that right? Least yeah, common? Yeah, least okay. common denominator. <laughs> so, yeah. so now I lose all the big benefits of going into the cloud because I insisted on going multiple cloud. Well, what Azure Arc does is it lets you basically mask all the infrastructure behind and you can control elements in Azure and in AWS and in Google Cloud and even on-prem and VMware, although in the article they don't specifically mention it. Uh, So you're able to have all of these disparate environments under the hood all controlled with one set of tooling through the uh, Azure Arc. And presumably, if you do something like deploy an Azure load balancer, that it can similarly use that same configuration to then deploy like an application load balancer in AWS, two different technologies, but they deploy with the same config. It would be really impressive if it lives up to the promise. Uh, it, it would be crazy. I think right now they're they're saying they only support uh, their Postgres SQL and their Azure SQL databases as deployment configurations. But it seems like reading the blog article that their goal is to say we're going to provide everything that we can. Yeah. If ultimately and greatest common denominator, least common multiple. Ah, greatest common go. denominator. Woo, we about messed so, up there. So, you know, the databases are probably the most important part because, you know, your web front ends and stuff are fairly static and you can manage those with, uh, you know, like uh, CI, CD, whatever, and and just push to them. Uh, But having databases stay synced across multiple clouds is really hard without breaking all the bells and whistles. So it'd be really cool. Not to mention that for migration purposes, you could say, well, I'm going to have this Azure SQL, but all of my data is on premises. Slowly, I'm going to move that over instead of trying to do that one big flip over. So 
Uh, we've seen a few things from Microsoft over the last few weeks, like the, the Azure and a backpack and all mm-hmm. that. So uh, this this contributes to that trust that they're trying to build, I guess. Yeah, you know, AWS had such a big hard uh, big head start that it's hard to beat somebody like that. So they're trying to remove every barrier, every uh, obstacle to entry to get customers to come over to Azure and Looks like they're winning so far, so it's doing pretty well. Well, not winning. They're, they're, they're catching up. They're gaining market share. So we'll, we'll see where that goes. Uh, you know, another thing that they've done is they announced some retooling of their endpoint management software. Uh, next article is from TechCrunch. Microsoft launched Endpoint Manager to modernize device management. If you work as an IT professional, the odds are you support Microsoft desktops, you know, like Microsoft Windows, and you know how difficult it can be to control things like system updates and deployment of software. And, and there's so many different options because you can do System Center Configuration Manager or Windows Intune, or you can deploy stuff by hand, or you can build custom install images. It's, it's all over the place, right? Well, Microsoft is trying to combine at least two of these things to build a new endpoint manager. Uh, And so they're gathering parts of the Microsoft System Center Configuration Manager or Config Manager uh, and Intune, combining those together to form one product, uh, which will give you a single place to go to be able to manage that and control deployments out there, making making our lives easy. I wonder if it's going to be as easy to set up as Intune. Uh, you know, <laughs> I have never personally used it, but I've seen some people around the office who are having to do some things with Intune and they're just like, ah, I just need you to work. You know, here's, here's the challenge with stuff like this. Intune is really powerful. It can do a lot of really cool stuff. And if your environment is hundred percent Microsoft and you leverage Intune, yeah, it's a pain in the butt to get it set up. But once it's set up, I mean, it is really great. You can remediate issues so fast. It gives you visibility. It's really, really cool. Until one of your employees walks in the door with a Mac. And then all all bets are off, right? Because Intune doesn't manage your Mac. And there's some basic functionality you can do, but now you got to stand up some whole new management platform. And that makes solutions like these very unattractive. You can use them to manage your your server deployments, your Azure infrastructure, even your server side where you might be sticking with all supported operating systems. But once you start getting into the desktop world, we're starting to see a lot of new devices pop up. You, you have people that are running Windows. That's still the major market share, so you've got that. But there's Macs creeping in, there's Chromebooks creeping in, and these are all starting to impact that, as well as tablets and mobile devices. And the support that the Config Manager has varies based on those platforms. Makes it really hard. Uh, but it is another area where they're starting to consolidate things together. And a lot of this stuff we used to look at and say, like, why, why do they have all these separate products? Well, sounds like they're saying that exact same thing at Microsoft now, and they're starting to combine them. All right, let's jump over to another one where they're combining things. Microsoft announced that it's going to be retiring its venerable MSDN forums and TechNet forums. Now, Justin, I know you have a Python background. Did you ever use the Microsoft Developer Network or MSDN? Uh, somewhat. I did a little bit in grad school because they gave us access to, to certain products. And uh, recently I've done some Azure things. So I've been through the MSDN and TechNet or TechNet Technic. That's something else. Yeah, that's like uh, a derogatory term. Yeah, like that's a technic. Uh, he's a technic. You might be a technic uh, yeah. if. <laughs> um, the, the problem that I had was as of recently, I've noticed things haven't been staying up to date because number one, there's a lot. I don't necessarily fault them for that, but it also seemed very fragmented. So 
I'm kind of interested to see how this coalesces into this unified platform and if that helps address some of those like out of date issues. That almost sounded like marketing speech there. You know, <laughs> it's going to coalesce into this. <laughs> I tell you what, I'm in this position where Peter. Hey, Am I all right? Am I blacking out? So if (laughs) I don't remember this podcast, it's because Peter possessed me and I went into marketing mode. (laughs) Well, you know, one of the big advantages MSDN and TechNet, TechNet, now you got me saying it, and TechNet, (laughs) was that you used to get free software. Well, I I say free, you had to pay to be in it, right? But then you'd get software, you'd get licenses for desktop OSs and Visual Studio and all that, and it was cheaper. Um, They stripped away that benefit, um, I think a couple of years ago now, which made it a lot less attractive. So all that was left were the forums, right? And on the TechNet side, I had to slow down to say it right, uh, there were just tons of great informational articles on on all sorts of bugs and problems that you'd have in Windows that they would already figure out the solution and tell you, and it was great. But it was interesting because they always had these community forums where you could post, and Microsoft employees would 100% completely, totally ignore it, right? Uh, or, you know, every now and then they might post a, a thing saying like, hey, you know, we're sorry to hear you're having a problem. Have you tried rebooting or reinstalling? And that was it. Like, that was all you would get out of Microsoft. It was 100% reliant upon end users, people like you going in and answering these questions. And that's that's where the Microsoft MVP program came from. So Instead of having two separate forums that Microsoft can totally ignore on a daily basis, now they're combining them together and putting them into the Microsoft Q&A forum that's going to be launching soon. Uh, So they'll be able to ignore one forum instead of having to ignore two, and then the MVPs can get in there and do all the real work. uh, (laughs) I feel like we're sending mixed signals during this entire episode. Microsoft, yeah, I like it. It's good, except where they ignore everything that we we care about. We could say the exact same thing about Google. And maybe even Apple, Google absolutely, Google hates their customers. Like, if you look at the forums. <laughs> you are but rungs the ladder to, to success. Yeah. Uh, and Apple, uh, Apple doesn't watch their forums any better, except every now and then an Apple employee will respond. Like, they get bored and they say, oh, I guess I'll look at the forums. So uh, I've, I've actually seen an Apple employee respond. With Google, it's a little bit tricky. It'll always be a community manager that responds, which is like a moderator, not an employee. So uh, yeah, it's it's just bizarre. That That's apparently as a society, what we decided we'll accept. We'll accept companies providing us the worst possible support. Yeah. I, for some reason, when you said that, I went cable companies. It went directly to my head. Yeah. So I, I think you could own in a couple of these sectors if you just had like a, a, a legitimate customer support, but then I don't know if that's sustainable or scalable. Yeah. Well, you know what makes it worse with cable companies is you actually talk to a human. It's a human that is that disregarding. That is failing you. Yeah. Like, versus, why, are you why are you interrupting my lunch? Versus, uh, How'd you answer the phone? Yeah. Like, we're paid to answer the phone, and that's it. Like, yeah. not anything beyond that. Yeah. Uh, with Google and Microsoft, you, you can, in your mind, you can say like, well... They never answered me. So there's probably good people working there that just didn't even see this versus the cable company. We're like, no, I, I talked to Bob and uh, Bob, and he said, that's tough. Yeah, Bob's a jerk. <laughs> and then he said, can you please take a quick survey? And I was like, we're not done yet, Bob. Have you noticed that if you like give them a real hard time, they don't send you the survey? I have not. Oh, yeah. I, I try to avoid talking to those individuals yeah. as much as possible. Yeah, the surveys are pointless. 
<laughs> yep, there you go. That's the data that goes into the abyss of carelessness. All right, well, I don't want it to come off too... Well, I'm coming off negative. That's, I, I can't, can't avoid that one. But there is a lot of really cool stuff coming out of Microsoft Ignite right now, and, and I am excited to see a lot of it. Uh, Azure Arc is certainly the shining gem of this. If it can deliver on its promises, it will be a phenomenal product we'll definitely want to check out. Uh, so, you know, just keep that in mind. <laughs> All right, let's 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 jump ship and go over to some other vendors. Over on Pharonix, they're reporting about Red Hat. Uh, Red Hat Enterprise Linux 8.1 has been released. Uh, 8.0 came out earlier this year, uh, and it now has kernel live patching support. 8.1 is considered a not a minor release, but it is a feature update when they, they go to that level. Uh, and the biggest feature that's coming out here with this one is kernel live patching support. And that means we can update the kernel without rebooting the server, which is pretty exciting because it means you're going to get more reliable uptimes. Uh, you know, I... I had a, a buddy a long time ago who, well, I still have a buddy, I guess. Uh, but he, <laughs> he was a wonderful man. Well, he, he worked for Sun Microsystems, oh. right? So that, that's where so that he got absorbed. Is. Sun Microsystems got acquired by Oracle, and then Oracle killed everything great, great about Sun. Yeah. Um, but one thing that he used to tease me about was anytime I mentioned rebooting a server, and he, he's a very smart guy. He actually wrote a lot of the hardware drivers for getting Solaris to run on top of their Spark systems. And, uh, and he would say, reboot, help me with this. I, I, what does that word mean? <laughs> and he would show me servers ahead 10-year uptimes and things like that because you could do things like kernel updates and not have to actually reboot. Not under Linux, but now you can. And this is a feature that's been in testing with the uh, uh, several other distros, like Ubuntu's had it for a little while now. When Red Hat gets it, like when they roll it into RHEL, that means it's considered stable and trustworthy. So that's the point we're at. Live kernel patching is now considered a stable, ready-for-full-on production thing in the Linux world. And there's a few other changes uh, that they've made. It looks like there's changed some SE Linux um, settings. Yeah, most of the other features were pretty minor, I thought. The SE Linux stuff is they they changed some of the tools to make it a little bit easier to write custom policies. You know, a lot of people didn't realize that, that when they were allowing access in SE Linux or like changing file context in the file system, it was all temporary. And then a system update would happen and you'd wipe out all your changes. So writing a policy that would actually be permanent and portable across systems is a lot harder. They've now made that a little bit easier. Um, there's the uh, Red Hat Insights, which is like a web console that you can monitor uh, information about your systems. It's really cool because if you get like an SE Linux violation, you can log into Insights. It'll show the violation and it'll give you the command to run to allow that access if you want to allow it. So now you don't have to know the command. Just copy and paste. And a lot of it even has a remediate button where it'll fix it for you. So now it, you know, because your server's phoning home. Are you telling me even I could be a sysadmin? Even you. Oh. See, this is the DevOps conundrum, right? And it solves that. Even I could be a, a sysadmin. Uh, and then we only have yeah. two people working here. And, yeah. And then well, security, whatever. Well, then, you know, you need to become somebody who can support uh, insights and all the various other things that go into to manage that. So, you know, the job role changes. But pretty cool stuff. Uh, the biggest thing, though, is that live kernel patching. That's the, the hot feature. All right, let's jump on to another one over on the Yubico blog. Now, we've talked about Yubico and the YubiKey a number of times. Uh, I'm a fan of the product. I use the product, right? Uh, I'm not sponsored by them. Uh, but multi-factor authentication is kind of a requirement these days for any kind of secure accesses out there. Uh, one challenge with the YubiKey is that it is a physical device and somebody could steal it right? If you leave it in your computer, for example, somebody could walk up and just tap it and it will gladly spit out the one-time key for that particular time code 
and that's it, right? Because the YubiKey just has a simple tactile button on it, and that's the end of that. Well, Yubico has announced that they are releasing a new version of the YubiKey that will actually do biometrics on the fingerprint so that when you tap it, it will, well, it won't be a tap anymore. Now it'll have to be a hold because it's got to check your fingerprint to make sure it's you. And if it is, then it will gladly spout out the key. So now it becomes almost like three factors of authentication if you're still using a password, because uh, you'd log in with your user and password, then you'd have to have the YubiKey present and you'd have to have your fingerprint to unlock it. Three different factors uh, all going into logging in. Does it make sure that your finger is still roughly uh, body temperature? You know, I can't imagine it does. So th this is not out yet, right? They've announced yeah. it. But the YubiKey is like so small. Yeah. And it was so low energy because it only gets five volts. And well, I guess any fingerprint scanner is going to be attached to the USB I mean, bus. You, you could probably do a temperature probe with that with five volts, yeah. right? Uh, you, well, you'd have to, right? If your normal fingerprint scanner is on the USB bus, then yeah. there's no reason the YubiKey couldn't so do it. That was my first thought. I was like, now, hold on. Does that mean that I can cut someone's finger? As morbid as that sounds, but that's always a, a concern, right? I still use YubiKey. I still your index finger. Uh, but well, that's a high-value target. That's not me. I'm not I getting think, stolen. Obviously, we need to test this on the podcast. And since <laughs> Peter's not here, I think he he's volunteers. volunteers. Yeah, that's yes. how it works. You volunteer if you're not here. And uh, But we could be generous. Let him pick a finger. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Pinky, you don't need that one. It was funny. Uh, so like YubiKeys and some of the other uh, physical devices, I remember having a discussion. They're like, oh, just use uh, either SMS or your phone with like Google Authenticator or whatever. Mm -hmm. And I was like, but... You know, I, I would. It's easier just to keep this. This is for a very particular business use. Yeah, but somebody could steal that, and I was like, someone could steal your phone too. Yeah. And if it's SMS driven, a lot of times you can see those those codes and just the pop ups on the front without even unlocking my phone. Yeah, I, on the newer versions of iOS, it's not like that. Like it, you have to face unlock before you can actually see what the notifications are. It's, it's kind of annoying from a user perspective because you know you got a notification if your phone's laying on the table. It just says notification, mm. but then when you face unlock, then it shows you what it is. Um, I don't know. They, there's there's different arguments here, and and there does come a point when you get into like security paranoia and the gain is not worth the pain. Uh, but there are realistic attack vectors on these. For me, my YubiKey, I keep it on my keychain. Right, I'm not going to go anywhere without taking my keys with me because I've got to start the car. Uh, assuming I go in my car, I guess I could abandon it that way. But you have to at least lock your door, right? I mean, yeah. one would hope, yeah. or maybe you don't. Yeah, totally trust me. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, at this point, that's the the Yubi key not being on you is is not your concern. But I do know some people where they get more than one Yubi key and they like leave one plugged into their desktop computer all the time. And then you're kind of treating it as like a TPM, a trusted platform module. If I steal your whole computer, I just stole your TPM as well, right? So, you know, use that way, you start to kind of weaken the security of it. A biometric fingerprint scanner like this will, will help to resolve that. So I'm excited about it. I'll, I'll buy one when they release. Uh, did they say a date in here? I don't... They announced it. I um, see one. Yeah, yeah. So we'll have to see when it comes out, but I'll buy one because... Uh, I'm. I'm at that stage of fandom, you know, with, with companies, you go through these phases and there's always this one phase where you'll just buy whatever a company releases because you have liked your experience with them. And that's how I am with YubiKey or YubiCo. And, and that's another throwback to appropriate customer service and good and, you know, treating your customers well. Yeah. Boom. Yeah. I'll buy one. I'll try it out. That's how people used to be with Apple, but now it's too expensive to do that. You have to be rich. <laughs> this is true. This is true. Like, oh, they just released a $10,000 Apple Watch. I, I don't think I'll try that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. 
there are some weird disparities in pricing there, but that's I think that's yeah. a whole other podcast. All right. Well, those are some of the new and exciting things that have uh, been released this week, technologies and stuff that we need to stay on top of. But now it's time to switch to our weekly Hall of Shame, which is the list of security breaches and alerts that are out there that we need to be aware of. One of the biggest ones to announce is, oddly enough, one of the ones with the least details, which is uh, over on ZDNet. Thousands of QNAP NAS devices have been infected with the QSnatch malware. So a new malware package is going around and infecting QNAP NAS or network attached storage devices. Uh, QNAP, if you're not familiar with them, uh, they're actually a a great company. They make good hardware uh, that gives you affordable storage that plugs directly into your network. Uh, it's some of the cheapest, like 10 gig, uh, 10 gigabit Ethernet type storage that you can get and throw onto a network. Uh, but it does run its own operating system. It's, it's a Linux-based OS, and it has a ton of different plugins and add-ons and stuff that you can stick onto it to make it do a lot more. Like it has a thing called Virtualization Station where you can run VMs on top of it. And the trade-off for being able to add all this extensible software is that you can also add extensible malware and uh, remote access toolkits, and that's exactly what's going on with QSnatch. Uh, and just so you're like, oh well, we don't we don't have Q. This is something that I know other uh, NAS providers like Prebuilt Solutions also support, like Synology yeah. also has a lot of those same features. So, do you think that will lead people to go, oh well, we've shown it to be true on Q? Like, what made QNAP different? than some of those other platforms that run a custom Linux distribution that have the ability to like run these small little VMs or, or little pieces. So I, I don't know necessarily there's anything that makes it different. Uh, I, I think it's more about visibility. You know, QNAP a while ago, they rolled out the QNAP cloud where their storage devices phone home and that gives them visibility into the devices. So when they learn about an attack, they can quickly check and say, all right, how many systems are compromised? Pow, now we know. And so they get really specific versus like if you buy a... I don't know, like a Western digital NAS that doesn't phone home at all. Nobody has any idea of knowing whether or not that's been compromised. It's just this standalone device. So that might be a part of it. Uh, But otherwise, in in this case, it's just that they had a vulnerability in their OS and somebody's taken advantage of it. Uh, So they kind of have a heat map that they've worked out and they're all over the place here in the US, Europe, and so on. Uh, The moral of the story, though, is not like ditch QNAP and move somewhere else. Everybody has these issues. The moral of the story is that you need to be updating your NAS, right? Because worst case scenario, if an attacker is able to infect your NAS, they now have access to the files that are on there. And even if they're encrypted, if it's the NAS that's doing the encryption, then they've got access to the keys. So they can just decrypt and exfiltrate your data. So if you're not sure if you've been compromised or not, then you need to look for data exfiltration, look for traffic on the network that shouldn't be there, uh, and you need to update your QNAP. Uh, they have already released an update for it. Uh, it's somewhere here in the article. Uh, and so they, uh, they've pushed an update out for it. They didn't say whether the update would remove the malware if it was already there or not. Did you? So it, they weren't real clear about the firmware update. They said the only confirmed, so it's like they're they're testing a few things, is you should do a full factory reset of your NAS device and then immediately do the firmware update, which prevents reinfection yeah. effectively. So, boom, uh, clear everything out, and then do an update immediately. Doing firmware updates, that I'll be honest, that's one of those things that I struggle to do consistently with all these devices that are spread everywhere. Well, and, and let me, uh, just a quick warning for you guys, uh, if you aren't intimately familiar with QNAPs, uh, if you pull all the hard drives and do the factory reset with the hard drives out, 
that's not good enough because it actually keeps a clone of the OS on a partition on the hard drives. So when you pop them back in, you'd be bringing that infection back in with it. So when they say a full factory reset, they literally mean you need to erase the NAS. You need to back up your data, wipe it. And that's a huge undertaking, a big, big deal. So Staying up to date is really important. Uh, this particular malware could do a lot of stuff. It could change passwords. It could disable the malware remover that's built into the QNAP OS or QOS. Uh, it can uh, you know, set access levels, create user accounts. It can do a lot of crazy stuff. So this is a pretty bad one. You just got to watch out uh, and make sure that you keep your devices up to date and safe. And even if you don't have data exfiltration, they did have a theory that maybe someone was trying to set up a fairly large botnet. So you should probably also monitor for any weird outgoing traffic or anything yeah. like that. Yep. Uh, you know, personally, like services like their their QNAP cloud don't to me they don't offer enough features to make it worthwhile. So I don't usually use them. So blocking outbound traffic from your NAS to the internet is uh, kind of an easy first step to prevent things like this from happening uh, or not setting a default gateway so they only communicate on the local network. These are, are like little easy cheating kind of ways to do it where but but if i was the sysadmin i wouldn't necessarily know that because i i would have been shoved in they'd be like oh we have these red hat insights you can take care of this you also need to handle all the network and the qnap stuff i don't know anything about that whoops whoops <laughs> yep it's the internet of things right this is yep. uh bruce schneier uh has told us the government is going to save us but uh for now it's still up to us <laughs> All right, let's uh, let's go over to one that's close to home, right? The uh, city of Ocala, which is a cool, what, 40 minutes south of here? It depends on what part of Ocala. About 40 minutes, though, yep. give or take. Uh, Daniel Lowry, who is on our podcast from time to time, he lives down in Ocala. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, so this one's definitely close. Uh, BEC fraudsters divert $742,000 from Ocala City in Florida. That's a lot of money. I wish I had it. And, but it wasn't me, I promise. And, you know, if it was the city of New York, $742,000 is probably not that big of a deal. But for a city like Ocala, that's a pretty big City of, of New York going, I'm, I'm pretty sure that might be in one of our desk drawers. Let me go yeah. check again. I got to make sure. But Ocala, they, they probably got hit. And it was funny how this was discovered. The uh, the construction company, so they're doing some updates to, I think, an airport, right? Yes. The, the yep. airport down there, they're trying to build a new terminal. Their international airport. Their international airport. If you've never been to Ocala, I, I have my my concerns about international flights out there. But you never know. You never know. Maybe maybe that's what well, they're they, trying to accommodate. They have one flight to Nassau, and that's oh. what makes them international. Oh, uh, that doesn't count. Yeah, yeah, that doesn't count. But they they the construction company said, "Hey, uh, you didn't pay this invoice." And they said, "Oh yeah, we did." And they go, "No, you didn't." And come to find out, there was an email compromise, and yes. an employee changed a routing number and an account number, and it went to a different account. Yeah, these types of attacks are on the rise. Uh, they're typically very targeted, and it takes a lot of work on the attacker's part. But basically, they usually will use either a phishing attempt or look for password reuse to gain access to somebody's mailbox. And what they're looking for is a mailbox for somebody in accounting, somebody who is responsible for transferring funds. And when they see that an invoice should be due, especially if it's like a recurring invoice, they can look at historical emails to figure out what they look like. And they can forge a new email that looks the same, except has their bank routing number. And then when the person in accounting issues the payment, they issue it to the wrong routing number, and the money now goes to a foreign account, an account, well, it's usually a domestic account, and then the attackers just immediately transfer it out. Uh, and that's what happened here was $742,000 was deposited, 
they were able to report the fraud pretty quickly, I think within two or three days, uh, but they were only able to recover just a hair over $100,000, $110,000, because the rest of it had already been transferred out. The attackers move pretty quick, but they try and stay under certain thresholds to so stay So there's the not like, uh, like all those reporting requirements for banks and financial institutions yep. that there's large sums moving. Yeah, not good. It was uh, what surprised me was um, the message. They spoofed the email address and added a single S at the end. So it was almost exactly the same. It's not like one of those where you hover over and it's yeah. like uh, citibank.jp.ru.zz. You're like, that's way too long there. Yeah, instead of it was osleyconstruction.com. Instead of that, it was osleyconstructions.com. Yep. And yep. that's easy to overlook. Yeah, and a, and a quick glance, because I actually had to read the article. I was like, no, that looks right. No, all oh, there is an extra S there. So even knowing that yeah. it was not right, it took a little, it took a little bit to figure it out. Yep. So, you know, definitely be on the lookout for that. And services like DKIM records and uh, you know, digitally signed. DNS lookup that, you know, making sure that you define your, uh, I'm forgetting, uh, SPF, SFP, shoot, SPF, SPF records, you know, those are all things that can help to ensure the email is coming from a legitimate domain. But when the domain name is one letter off, they can create their own DKIM and SPF records. They can do whatever the heck they want at that point. So we have to be vigilant. And what you really have is in your accounting department should basically be a checklist. Anytime you're wiring funds somewhere, you need audible confirmation of the routing number. Like you can't trust routing numbers in email anymore. These types of attacks have become too prevalent. You need to get uh, at least a verbal confirmation. So you call, not not email, right? You call over and verify that routing number with each and every transfer. Yeah, and even if you call, be very, very careful because we reported on an attack three weeks ago where someone was on the phone and was like, telling someone, oh, I'm going to send you a pin, yep. but they were doing some roundabout to try to gain access to their bank account number. So there's a lot of steps that you have to take. I'll be honest, if it was $740,000, I would probably be crazy paranoid anyway. Be like, no, no, I'm not going to change it. Mm -mm, I know that's a lot of money, but maybe they see a lot of money and it was just desensitized. You know, I was talking to a real estate attorney and she was telling me about how uh, last year they had a case where somebody was buying a house and it was it was five or six hundred thousand dollars, and the bank was going to wire the funds to the attorneys or you know the the escrow, the escrow. and then from escrow they then transfer it to the seller. Mm -hmm. And when they went to transfer it to the seller, they got a fax that had the routing information on it, and the fax was forged, and they didn't know it, and they transferred the funds to the wrong place, and the money was gone. So imagine like buying a house, and all the <laughs> money is just gone. That happens. Yeah. Oh, man. I, the, my heart is racing just hearing <laughs> about that from somebody else. So, Well, in, in those scenarios, insurance can cover it, right? So let, let's pretend for a moment. I mean, we know the city of Ocala had insurance, so that'll cover it. They have to pay some cyber deductible or mm -hmm. whatever, and then the rest of it's covered. But likely attackers have access to the email or had access to an email account for somebody in accounting. So, you know, well, I guess... For them, all their information is public records anyway, so they don't have to report the breach, right? Because it's all yeah. Actually, so <laughs> so for those of you listening who do not know, in the state of Florida, if you are part of a government institution, there's Sunshine State record laws, mm -hmm. where every communication, digital communication, between government individuals, right? I used to work for a school. Yep. We were a government employee. You can go and ask for any communication that I did digitally from the whole time I worked there and it has to be prepared. Like they're all public records. So 
Uh, the only time things get iffy is when we find out government officials are using private emails yep. in addition to yep. their standard emails because then it gets gets weird. Also, you should never co-mingle because that opens you up for private information disclosure, which I know about, but I know a bunch of individuals who would do that. They're like, no, I'll just bring it all to the same place. I'm like, no, yeah. no, no, no. That's a great idea. And no, I don't want my personal life public record <laughs> if possible. Yeah, so I, actually, so I guess I don't know how that works. Like as far as uh, the accounting department and and just, do you think that so, would be public re- or would that be redacted? So they are allowed to redact, and then you can do a Freedom of Information Act request yeah. or whatever, and uh, and if they can prove a reason why it had to be obscured, then they're allowed. But they're only allowed to obscure on certain things here in in Florida. At the national level, they obscure on all sorts yeah. of stuff. They deny FOIA Act <laughs> requests and yeah. all that stuff. All I see is A, the, and, the, and, yeah. A. Have you seen some of these where, like, the whole page just has a big black square over it? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, weird stuff. All right. Information. Well, Speaking of information. Speaking of information. Do, do you remember Cambridge Analytica? That does sound does familiar. I, I, you know, I can't quite place it, though. So, you know, Facebook sells our data. Like, that's that's their business model. Uh, and I think anybody would be naive to Are say- Are you serious? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. like, that's how they make their money. And then people were just shocked that uh, one of the vendors they sell data to had found a way to access everybody's data. And that was Cambridge Analytica. They accessed every Facebook user's data. It was massive. Uh, and people went nuts about it. Cambridge Analytica went out of business, sort of, just changed names, whatever. Um, but, uh, but that was a big deal. Uh, at the end of last year, earlier this year, and Facebook put in all new permissions and things like that to make sure that no other company could ever possibly do that. Definitely not one company, even more unlikely two companies could do it. Certainly three companies wouldn't possibly be able to do it. What about 100? Well, that's ridiculous. Yeah, I know, right? So it turns out that uh, (laughs) a lot of the permissions they put in place weren't retroactive, (laughs) So about 100 companies still had full access to everybody's data, all of it, uh, as of last month. (laughs) Yep. And didn't they get fined for the Cambridge Analytica thing? They did. They did. A laughable fine that was like, you know, a billion dollars or something meaningless to them. Oh, yeah. I was like, hold (laughs) up. (laughs) Meaningless to all to them. Gotcha. Gotcha. To us, that would be like life ending. but (laughs) Not life ending. I just be like, well, I guess I'd need to have a bunch of kids so I could pay this off. Yeah. It's going to be transgenerational. Short sword. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So anyhow, um, I was way back in 20 April of 2018 when they put the changes in. Uh, So, yeah, roughly 100 developer partners still had access where they could access anything. Uh, Facebook is currently doing an audit. And my favorite quote from this article is, although we've seen no evidence of abuse, we will ask them to delete any member data they may have retained, and we will conduct audits to confirm that it has been deleted. So rest assured, you know, these companies, the information is going to be gone and and you'll be back to being private again. Hmm. It also said that 11 of those have accessed that information in the last 60 days. Yeah. Not, not not that they abused it, but it has been accessed. Well, and, and why wouldn't you, right? I mean, it's great information. Like if you're a marketing company or doing analytics, you know, like yeah. this is exactly what you And you're need located in Cambridge? It's yeah. perfect. Yeah. I, uh, I still argue that uh, Cambridge Analytica, this is not a popular opinion, but I don't think they should have gotten in trouble. I think it was just an ingenious use of the data and people freaked out. So 
this is I think this comes down to legal versus moral kind of thing, right? Well, yeah, morally it's yeah, more. But I don't know. This is this is a weird ground. I I, I kind of agree with you. I, I don't know if we would necessarily hold the same opinions and a variety of things, but they weren't technically doing anything yeah. illegal or with outside the confines of what Facebook had provided to them. And even from a moral standpoint, you'd have to say like, all right, Facebook has suckered hundreds of millions of people into giving away their private data. That's not okay. Yeah. Right? I, so I, then we I don't disagree with that. Yeah. But if you say, well, surely Facebook told people they were sharing the information. This is on the up and up. Then it's all good. So yeah, it does come down to what people actually knew. And yeah. um, and services like Google and Facebook and, are effectively suckering you out of your private data. Oh, oh not suckering. They are not only suckering you out of your private data, they're using it to determine your experience to some, to some level. Uh, part of that was because there were some political ramifications, if I'm not, if I'm not yeah. wrong, right? Yeah, like, well, you know, once the congressmen and senators are up for election, all of a sudden, you know, they need a hot button <laughs> and they need some campaign funds and this becomes an issue. Oops. <laughs> so, all right. Well, you know what? We're not going to have to report on these security stories much longer because... A solution to all IT security breaches and cybersecurity issues was released this week. Uh, I'm scared, Don. Does that mean we're going out of business? Well, no, uh, because you know you still need the platforms to be breached. Oh, right? yeah, that's so, true. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> so we still got that, but uh, but you no longer need to worry about cybersecurity thanks to an amazing solution that the Vice uh, team covered over on Vice.com or Motherboard or. Motherboard by Vice, or I don't know, one of them acquired the other. I lost track. I think uh, they're actually owned by Disney. Are they really? Yeah, I think so. All right, so Walt Disney. <laughs> yeah, wait a minute, so let me confirm before we Bob start Iger spreading. Or somebody uh, uh, owns Vice. <laughs> Who owns Vice? Uh, yeah, so when it acquired Fox Stake and Vice, it owns twenty six percent stake in Vice. Well, twenty six percent though. It's not controlling. Yeah, that's interest. that's not controlling interest. But uh, can you still say it was Disney? Uh, I guess, I mean, they're involved. Right? <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. So here we go. Whatever. Uh, anyway. But anyhow, so, uh, you know, you might ask yourself, what do these big companies like Facebook do when they have a, a data breach where data is, is leaked accidentally or maliciously or so on? The answer so far has been to hire some of the best security professionals possible and start following all those rules that you were supposed to be following in the past uh, and just kind of hit the reset button and hire a good PR team and go. Uh, but now we have a nice little website, uh, which I'm going to clean this up just a little bit because it's called uh, why the F was I breached.com. <laughs> yep. It's, it's a catchy name rolls right off the tongue. And, uh, and if you ever experience a breach, if hackers get into your data, if you accidentally leave an S3 bucket wide open for people to get at, you can come to this website and it will generate for you the proper response to be able to send out to your customers to solve all of your issues. So for example, uh, my first approach here is I've pulled it up and uh, I think I've, I've made the production team nervous. I don't know if we can <laughs> yep, show this yeah, or not. Yeah. Uh, is that the... It says the the effing hacking activists use botnets to partially disrupt our services, but we've since put a rotating lock GIF on our website, so it will never happen again. Was that Equifax? And then... <laughs> If Equifax already used that one, you can regenerate it and it'll give us another one. And so this time, the competition used botnets to cause a minor disturbance, but we've since upskilled our cafeteria staff, so it will never happen again. Uh, so these are some of the excuses that, uh, funny enough, yeah, I mean, if you just sit here and auto-generate them over and over again, these are literally things that we've heard from various companies that have been compromised. Uh, and, you know, a made-up parody site, honestly, is just as good as the announcements that we're getting out of some of the bigger companies that are out there. 
you know, at least you get a little chuckle. You're like, man, I'm about to get identity theft all up in here, but at least I got a good laugh out of it. They paid it back a little bit. Yeah. One laugh at a time. So there was some in the article. My favorite one was the effing fancy bears used a vulnerability in Windows XP, SP, XP, SP1 to hack the coffee maker. But we have since worked with industry-leading specialists, so it will never happen again. <laughs> Just fancy bears, uh, a yep. coffee maker running Windows XP. I don't know. You know, sadly, all of that is plausible. Yes, right? it like- is. <laughs> so all, it's funny. I've had some some people around who are like, "Oh, you know, I'm going to get uh, some cameras and these new devices, and I'm going to get that smart toaster." And I, I have went above and beyond to go. You know how I like technology? I go, yeah. I go, I would not buy any of that. Just like the the toasters and stuff, not a big fan of those because how do you keep them updated? How do you keep them safe? I have trouble trying to figure that out. I'm just not a big fan of them. That's yeah. just me. Yep, and you know it's more stuff to to support to maintain, but you got to stay on top of it. Uh, some of the devices have a lot of value. Those cameras yeah. are, are pretty useful yeah. to people. But uh, you know, speaking of staying on top of industry trends and technologies and other things, we have a great interview that is coming up. We're going to have uh, one of the professors from Central Texas College who does a lot of, uh, well, not just security, but IT training in general, uh, who is going to be on the TechNATO. I'm not supposed to say the. Shoot. See, if Peter was here, he wouldn't have said the. So anyhow, he's going to be here to do an interview for TechNATO. It is going to be amazing. You'll definitely want to stick around for it. That's going to be coming up right after a brief word from our sponsors. Are you a career changer or a budding tech pro who's looking to start their career in IT? I'm Wes Bryan, and along with my fellow IT Pro TV edutainer, Cherokee Boos, we've just shot a new show just for you. Each week, we'll dive into topics to help you launch your career in tech. Watch how to get started in IT on YouTube now. Just head to youtube.com forward slash IT Pro TV to watch and look for new episodes every Saturday at 9 a.m. U.S. Eastern Time. All right, welcome back to TechNado, everybody. And as promised, we are here with our interview with Professor Joe Welch, who's a professor of computer science at Central Texas College. Uh, professor Welch, thank you for joining us. Thanks, Don. I really look forward to the opportunity to explore all these topics with you and certainly the chance to talk with you and Justin is, is treasured. Thank you very much. <laughs> well, uh, treasure is not the word we normally yeah. use around here. Well, <laughs> we'll come back to that and see if that sentiment is held after the interview. Uh, but it, uh, we, we like to have fun. And there's a, you have very similar topics to me. So I'm, I'm kind of interested to see how this goes. Yeah. And, you know, we, we had a chance to meet in person a couple of years ago at RSA. You were there with a, a group of students that, uh, you know, we got to interact with a little bit. And it was really cool to see people that were getting into IT that were learning that still had the bright wide eyes where everything's new and exciting. Uh, and so I was really looking forward to the chance to catch back up with you and see how things have gone over the last couple of years. Cause I know the industry has changed a lot. Uh, and you know, maybe that, maybe that's a good place to start, right? Because you deal with this on a, on a semester basis or yearly basis. So you can kind of mark the change out a little bit better than we can. Uh, how, how has that changed over the last couple of years? Well, I think since we since we last talked, which was, I guess, January of 2016, I was at a community college then with some great students. I'm in a separate community college now with great students. But I think that one of the reasons I absolutely value the fact that we have IT Pro TV and we have all the resources and your resources are getting uh, broader and, and more useful, I think, um, 
there's a time constant associated with change at an academic institution and they do a really good job. But if you think of what's the time constant of change in, um, you know, in the world, you know, clouds, clouds huge. Now we talked about cloud five or six or seven years ago, and it was something that was on the horizon. And now when you realize now, when you want to provision, your likeliest to provision in cloud is on campus. So I think we have the real world that goes along at its, at its galloping speed. And then we have, sort of the bridging that's that's our role to do in the college to take the real world and refactor it in an understandable and foundational way for the students so they can get through the material. Um, but we also need to make sure that here at the college, at my college, it's a two-year program. So, so they're going to get out into the field pretty quickly. I want to make sure that they're reflecting knowledge that's current and useful and treasured in the, in the real world, not just some legacy academic program. And I think that's uh, what I try to do with my students when we're, when we're having conversations, and we, I probably say it too many times to them, um, my role here at the college is to set foundation. When they graduate and they move into the workforce, they're going to be challenged on their own to learn without going back to college. And then they need to develop skill sets to learn on their own all the time, all the time. And it's a good idea to develop that skill set right now with me in college instead of waiting until they graduate and just kind of tossing them over to the fence. So absent resources like IT Pro TV and some of the other um, resources, I don't really have the opportunity or the, or the capability to offer that to the students. So I'm, I'm very indebted to that. Now, c computer science is a pretty big umbrella, right? There's a lot of different topics that fall into that. And when people get out in the workforce, some will go to development, some will go to security, some will go to system administration, like there's all sorts of different places people can end up. Uh, where where do you see the primary focus right now? Like where is the most demand? That's a that's a tough that's a tough apple to slice. So here's so I have many, many students who come to me and say, hey, you know, Professor Watts, I, I'm kind of interested in IT or security. I don't know where I fit. I don't know what's the value, the value proposition in terms of career or money or reward. So, so kind of what I speak to them is um, they don't need to decide now, but try to take a couple of classes, try to take uh, a, a programming class. We're, we're, we're big on Python in our first, first course, um, or try to take a server class or try to take a networking class and then do well in that class. And that'll help shape your, your uh, conclusions going forward. But the, the overall, the big pitch is to let them know that in this computer world, it's a big tent. And you can be in this big tent and you don't have to be a software developer if that doesn't, if that doesn't scratch your itch. But the large, the large constituencies in the computer world are software developers, which are also a tent of their own, um, IT networking, and that's a large tent. And then what's, what's growing now and has sort of become um, certainly an equivalent area, which is security. And those, aren't, those, those bubbles have some sig significant overlaps. But I try to I try to ask the students to shape their interest and their skill set to meet in one of those areas because because each one of those areas has an academic program attached to it. So one of my roles is to try to encourage them to be successful to move through an academic program and to give them a vision of what that looks like. Now for each one of those, um, you know, I, I I just constantly encourage the students that yeah yes definitely do a really good job in your classes and you'll you'll be awesome in your classes get your A's. But in addition to that, everybody here needs to do something significant in that area. So for example, I have a class full of students who are software developers. They're in their second course. So I asked them to go to meetups and I asked them to go to hackathons 
and spend the weekend. Hackathons are just a great vehicle for being immersed into the soft junior software engineering role. So then they can see, uh, we, we had some students came back and they said, hey, Professor Watts, those people are nice. This is cool. This was fun. We like this. I want to do this. Or um, at uh, in Austin, we just finished uh, um, a pretty large security conference that was run, run by our OWASP group. So the security-minded students went down to that and they, frankly, they got a lot more value out of it than I anticipated. So I was happy to see that. So I think I think the, the role is to sort of shape the academic path, but while I'm shaping the academic path, is explain to them what they need to pour into the top so that they'll be awesome when they graduate and not just leave with a, you know, with a, I don't want them to leave just with a, a two-year degree. That's not my, or, or to transfer, that's not my role. My role is leave with a two-year degree, also leave with having completed an internship, also leave with having completed a Network Plus or Security Plus or some of the many wonderful um, certifications that you guys support there. It, it's kind of refreshing to hear like you need to go get additional experience because uh, I mean, to some extent, I don't know what I want to be when I grow up, but, and, and that, that's okay. Right. I've kind of moved through several spaces, but when people ask me now, like, you know, some cousins or whatever, well, what should I do? What should I go to college for? I'm like, well, if you don't know me telling you is probably not the best idea. <laughs> Maybe you should try a few things. Maybe you should, you know, try some technology, try some of the practical medical field, whatever it may be. So I'm pretty happy that you're like, hey, not only do you have to do coursework, you got to go do something at least semi-meaningful, right? Or engage with other people, interact, network. Um, that's something that I did myself that's really hard to relate to people if they don't have uh, places to make that interaction. Now, with that said, have you found that there's certain certain courses or certain things that kind of have a draw to all three of those kind of groups we outlined where like almost everybody gets excited about it? Well, we, we have two courses at the college that are purposefully have a wide intake and they have a, you know, we call it a very low threshold. So basically we want them to come to us, work hard, learn about the field. And the, and the, the um, kind of the central theme for the first course is compute is really for people who are consumers of, co of computational products. Um, so people who use, you know, Microsoft Word, who people who use uh, some of the products for um, the artistic design products. And we, we kind of say, we take a slice across everywhere and we say, computing is everywhere. Here's some areas where people consume it. So we speak to, um, you know, we speak to geospatial, geospatial awareness is a huge field right now. And, and it's not echoing down into the academic areas except for geography departments so much anymore and it's really become you know if something becomes commoditized so much it's not it's not a field of its own it's a tool that goes into any given field so we have we have kind of an introduction to computing introduction to computer science and we have to be very careful to distinguish between computing and computer science for for reasons of clarity that allow a student to make best decisions um, so that's one of our courses and that's kind of what you would think it would be is a little bit of cube computing, a little bit of self-driving cars, a little bit of, you know, how does GPS work, a little bit of um, Internet of Things. And then the other course is for people who are thinking about going into computer science. And we want to, it's, it's an introduction to programming logic and design. So it's really to say, um, hey, you don't need to be in computer science if you don't want to. It's a fun field. But this is something that everybody should know. So, so we try to give them some computational tools. And largely, it's so we use Python. We use, and Justin, we have got some great tools that didn't exist before that make it, they make it really fun to teach. And I'll, I can give you some examples about 
about that. But the goal is that they learn a little bit about the basics of coding so that they can apply it in, in really any construct. So, you know, what's a loop? What's a input output? What's a, what's the logic that you use? You can apply it to Excel. You can also apply it to, used to do some satellite design work. You can apply it to the satellite design tool with Python. Um, so in that case, you're a creator of, of a computational tool, not necessarily a consumer of the tool. And the, the, the interface between both of those is a little bit fuzzy, but that's kind of the meme that I have in my mind when I'm speaking to the students. And sometimes I get so excited, I forget which class I'm in and which, you know, what I'm talking about. I don't necessarily want to do that. <laughs> and then you cover it up by saying you were cross-training, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you I just want to let you know, it's everywhere. It's everywhere. <laughs> Technology is everywhere. And I, I was keeping you on your toes and I'm glad you figured it out. Yeah, uh, absolutely. But I guess as a teacher, you got to be ready to roll with the punches uh, when that comes about. It's good to hear that you're using Python and and not something like COBOL, um, <laughs> which would be absolutely, I mean, they could probably make a whole bunch of money. You know, it's interesting because like when I was in college, uh, that a lot of the computer courses they offered were on languages that were specifically training languages. So like there were entire courses where you would just program in Eiffel mm -hmm. and nobody actually uses Eiffel in the real world. It's just a, a training language. And I always felt that that hindered people, but I mean, I guess not. People went on and became developers. But now to see where they're actually learning real, you know, you may well go out and use Python in the real world. Uh, I think it's one of the most popular languages right now. Yeah, well, I think that's both an, an attribution to its roots, but also people seeing the value. Like, I, I don't have to teach you all kinds of crazy stuff like I do in Java just to print something on the screen. You can just use it, and it just so happens that power that Python's incredibly general purpose and extendable, so you can mm -hmm. use it in a real context, not like Eiffel or yeah. one of the languages that were around for a while was Pascal or Pascal. Yeah, right. I so remember Pascal. Yeah, I, I mean it's still around technically, but super easy to write in it. <laughs> I, I tried to stay away from it. <laughs> there's a. There's a, uh, um, there's a, just a real, a real light to the Python community and the teaching community. His name is Greg Wilson. And he started this movement that's, it's just wonderful. It's called software carpentry. And it's, it takes, it builds and takes these small training teams to every graduate program in the United States at all R1 institutions, state institutions, regional institutions. And it teaches them how to bring it. What does it, what does it do? They say that we want to get, and I'm, I'll probably get this wrong a little bit, that we want to give you two days of training, and our goal is to save you an hour or two hours a, a week for the rest of your life using tools, and the tools that they're using in this case are Linux, Git, Python. Those are what they're primarily using. And it's yeah. since morphed into, um, it started off as software carpentry, it's since morphed into data carpentry and li library carpentry, which really speaks to Python is a tool, and it's definitely a language, but it's a tool that in a couple of days you can give somebody a pretty good, pretty good superpower. And um, so it's interesting to see like technology is kind of moving that way because I, I like software carpentry as well because people go, oh, well, you know, I don't want to be a software developer. I was like, that doesn't mean that, that programming won't help you or knowing some of these basics about version control or, or Linux won't necessarily be applicable because I know for me, I try to automate as much as possible. Assuming that it's a repeated task, don't do a one-off task and automate it because it took you longer to automate it than this is doing it. Uh, another big one, I don't know, have you heard of Jake Vanderplas? No. Uh, so he was a physicist and he, I think it's University of Washington, and he's all about computation in the physical sciences. So using Python 
to address physical science problems and make uh, physical sciences more accessible through like visualizations and computational tools. So he's big on like software, the, the same thought process for software carpentry. So I, I like those very much as well. Um, you should definitely check out Jake Vanderplas. Yeah, I, I got it here. I appreciate that. So our, so our, we're sort of in mid midterm of our, of our Python programming course, our introduction, introduction to programming logic and design. So the, so I try to push a little bit at the students kind of push at the belly button and say, so here's the, here's the way I pushed on them a little bit was, you know, people are talking about this global warming like it's a thing. I don't think there's anything at all to global warming. And I'm doing that very facetiously to get a reaction. But I also want them to challenge me as a professor and everything I say. They shouldn't consume it without 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 regard. So then we ask about it. You know, why, why do you think there's climate change? Why do you think there's global warming? And they say, well, it's global warming because things are getting warmer. And then, ding. OK, let's go pull some data sets and look at and plot these data sets in Python and watch the trends and see is it getting warm? Where is it getting warm? And how much is it? And what are the, you know, how do you interpolate? How do you extrapolate? That's a, that's like a, that's like a two hour session in Python. So Python brings some of these things that might be a little bit of, you know, sort of off there in the world, kind of like you're saying, Justin, is some of these higher level physical science concepts and brings them right immediately. So, so hopefully after the course is over, someone will say, you know, I don't know if there's any global warming. You can say, wait a minute, here's a data set. Here's how we analyze it. Let me give you a hand. All right. If you're just tuning in, we are interviewing Professor Joe Welch from Central Texas College. And uh, you know, we're talking a little bit about the background that students get to prepare themselves to get out in the real world. And, uh, you know, you guys were talking about software carpentry, but it, it got me thinking about uh, some courses that I've seen popping up every here and there on critical thinking skills, where it's not even so much about writing a, you know, writing in a particular programming language, but just thinking through a problem and figuring out how to approach it to solve it. Uh, have, have you, Professor Welch, have you kind of worked through any of that with your students or is that just integrated into your normal courses? Well, we try to, I try to, and to, to varying rates of success, I try to deliberately explore design with the students independent of a language. Um, so for example, we have a C plus plus class and the students are working on a pretty significant project. And so the goal is not to make code immediately. The goal is to think about like you're saying, the, the higher level thinking skills. How does this fit in? What, what's my user interface? How might I support my user in doing this? We try to do that and we push on it, but it's it's that's a that's a skill in process to for the students to accommodate that. Um, and I think I think a programming class is a good class to explore that in because there's such a contrast between here's design, here's best practices. And once you're done with that, now we can code it. But but you know, once you get comfortable with coding, and I don't want to, I don't want to belittle coding because coding is awesome. But once you're comfortable with the language and you're pretty good with it, the design becomes the fun part, not the, not the coding part. The transition to, to the actual running code is 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 a pretty sta pretty standard workflow. So we work on that a lot, and that's that's always tough to mature for the students and I think for me for, for adults. Yeah, that that's I was going to say that exact thing. That's tough for any of us. I, I would wholly agree. Once you're, once you're comfortable with programming languages and just like some of those basic paradigms, it's the, well, how do I actually make this, like devise a solution that fulfills all these requirements? That's really how you start to level up, but it's incredibly difficult to do. And I would think that there are some issues that crop up. I know for me, right? Look, we'll just take global warming, whatever it may be. There's some like a weird <laughs> conflation between is this just a feeling or is this a question that I can 
analyze, right? Even social issues where maybe it's not a physical science. Are, is the criminal justice system actually as systemically racist everywhere or is it just regional or those are public data sets that if you have a question, programming is now a tool to go think about those, but you have to, you have to have that critical thinking to go, well, how do I test that? How do I know if that's true? How do I go about acquiring that? So, uh, I'm, I'm pretty happy. You ever use the art of problem solving books? Uh, I think they're more math related, but there is a programming one. Um, you might want to check out. This is this is like a, a teacher's just like a reunion <laughs> or something. Uh, those are, are handy because it's incredibly difficult to teach. And I say we're all in technology because w- we find those puzzles and perplexity just kind of fun. Uh, but that's not always the case for everybody. So uh, well, I would be interested to see how that plays out. In a prior life, we did some. One of my roles was to do was to uh, assist in the design of satellite constellations. And it was, and, and I saw that there as, you know, I would almost immediately devolve to, I got a satellite, I can solve your problem. You just step back and watch my satellite. But then you, then you step back one more level and you realize, you know, I can solve this with big satellites. I can solve it. It's sort of like solving the cellular connectivity problem on earth right now. You know, we could do that with a lot of cell towers. We could do it with the, the balloons, the loon balloons that Google's doing. We could do it with all the different satellites that are, that are starting to shoot up in space now. So yeah, I agree with you that I'm, I'm going to look at that, the art of problem solving book, because I'm always looking for something to enhance a conversation to stay away from the specific technicals. I think the longer you stay away from the specific technical solution, the more that you can explore something that wasn't, that wasn't well written before, or well considered before. Um, there was a friend of mine who, who he was wonderful. And we were in our, we did our last tours in the military together and he was, he was absolutely brilliant. Um, and we would be in class and talking about different things. And, and, and he always, and, you know, we kind of have, a, we were, we were a self-norming organization. We came up with what we thought were incredibly good ideas, but they were very similar to each other. And then he kind of would come out from the back of the room and he would say something that kind of stunned us that it was so far out of what we were considering, but it was probably in most cases, a much better solution. And I was thinking, I would always think two things. One is, Oh, he did it again. And then the second thing would be what an insightful, per- perfect analysis that he did to do that. So, so I think some of the problem solving tools are make sure that you definitely bring all the factors into account, you know, weigh them appropriately. But, but in this day and age, there are so many sort of out of band solutions that we have to be careful that we don't inadvertently not, you know, kind of, kind of select out because we're not looking at it. We want to make sure we keep our bandwidth wide. You know, you mentioned your background working with satellites and that you served in the military. And one of the, one of the things that we like to do on TechNATO is to kind of find out a little bit about how people got into IT. So what, you know, what, what is your backstory? What, what got you into IT? Why are you so passionate about it? Um, the, so Don, the, the cool thing was, is I, and I can't, I'm so blessed to be where I am right now. Um, so, so when I applied to college, I, I lived out in California, I applied to college. Now think about all the people that are applying to college now. I applied to one college, I applied to the Naval Academy. And in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, that's good. You know, they're going to, they're going to select me. And, um, and I got in and, and I didn't have a plan B and I was, and so I got to the Naval Academy and they have a tremendous engineering program. I, I sort of didn't know what their majors were when I got in there. I just wanted to go and fly for the Navy. That's all I wanted to do. And they gave just a physics, differential equations, advanced mathematics, uh, uh, heat transfer, it was, it was so special. And then I remember that in a lot of my classes, they started factoring in basic. We were doing basic programming for things like um, stress and strain on a beam, 
um, trying to track trying to track something in the future if you know it's course and speed and things like that. So so my first dipping into I, we didn't have a computer at home when I was growing up. My first dipping into computing was using uh, a basic program to do some calculus conversation uh, uh, calculations, and then I went into the fleet. And my plane in the fleet was like. I thought it was an advanced plane. At least it seemed at the time. Um, now, I want you to think about this: the 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 uh, the display processor that we use for our plane it had 4K of memory, and we thought that was advanced way back then. So, so I I just enjoyed being immersed. Everything in my plane was was technical and electronic, but I realized when I was in the in the flying squadrons, I like I like teaching the most. I like you know I would I would go to the fleet, then come back ashore. And the new, the new aviators, I would teach them whatever it was. We would teach them water survival or radar or electronic warfare or data communications. But when I got to the end of my Navy time, I realized I wanted to spend time talking to people, encouraging people that STEM fields, IT fields were for them. And that, that's, I feel so blessed to do that. But that's been my, my mission. It's been my enthusiasm. And it's been my joy to do that since I got out of the Navy, which has been 18 years ago now. Yeah, gosh, it's so long. Time flies when you're having fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it really does. It really does. Um, All right. So I, well, so I feel, oh, I feel like I'm, I'm, you know, I feel so grateful to um, almost every time, like a little while ago, I was sitting there trying to explain an equation and how to do a, a, an approximation for a, a calculus equation. And the only reason I know how to do that is because some, some professor a long time ago took the time to explain it to me. So now I can, I can hand it on to the, to the next student. So I'm, I'm very grateful. I, I'm, I'm happy to be at this college. By the way, we're considered to be the community college of the Army. Um, half of our students in this college here are, are Army uh, military personnel deployed around the world. So we have students in Kuwait, students in um, in the box over there in Iraq. Um, so so one of my one of my happy convergences is by teaching here, I can also continue to teach the the military personnel. Well, that's an amazing story. All right, well, uh, Professor Welch. For our listeners that are out there, for people that are interested in getting into IT and, and kind of making that their career and moving forward, is there any advice or particular resource or something like that that you'd uh, you'd steer them to as as a suggestion? Well, I would I would steer them to this resource to the IT Pro TV resource because it's very wide and very deep and you can stay there forever. But I think if someone's trying to find a, a lightly touched um, device or consideration, you know, the Raspberry Pi or Arduino IOT community is you can do a lot with $50 and it can teach you how to, how do I build a sensor? So when some, excuse me, when somebody opens up a door an alarm goes off, how can I build a sensor um, that sends a laser across a room and that conveys music across the laser? That's what I would say. I would say start wallowing in the Raspberry Pi community and the Arduino community. It's very, it's very welcoming. People are tremendously nice. There's, there's meetups probably at every city around the United States. Excellent. Well, I really appreciate you spending time with us on TechNATO. I know our listeners do too. Uh, is there, let's see, uh, well, we mentioned you know, you're with Central Texas College. People can always jump over to the uh, CTC webpage and, and check out your programs there. If they're in the area, they can obviously enroll. Uh, Absolutely. But, otherwise uh, engage with the various resources that you recommended. So thank you very much for spending time with us. And for you, the listeners out there, thank you for listening, but stay tuned because we still have a little bit more Technado coming up next. Hi, I'm Vicki Guy. Join me each week for Ignite Stories of Leadership, a podcast from the Pro TV Network. 
Each week, I'm joined by a different guest from around the world as we explore issues to ignite the leader in you. Building on my long career in corporate learning, I'll bring you face-to-face -face with leaders and global businesses and present real tactics for applying new strategies in your career. Watch and subscribe today at itpro.tv slash podcasts. Welcome back, everybody. Always a great time when we get a chance to, to touch base with somebody, that, especially somebody we've interviewed in the past, but uh, someone like Professor Welch, who's just, he's got the student's best interest in mind, and he's trying to help people get into IT. I, I, I love interviews like that. And he's excitable, right? He, you can tell. That's one of those times where people go, well, what do you mean by passionate? That, yeah. That's it. You yeah. can tell that he was excited. <laughs> Just like, here you go. Just watch this. You'll be fine. Uh, I kind of hijacked that one a little bit, but we have very similar self-interest as far as like how that goes. So it was pretty interesting to, to talk to someone else who has a similar mindset, has a little bit different kind of career path that, that led him to be a professor, and it was all good. Yep. All right. Well, I think that is about a wrap for Technado, although uh, I do have a couple things I would like to highlight. Uh, you know, over on IT Pro TV, we're, we're moving into the holiday season, so our webinar schedule gets a little bit crazy. But uh, uh, actually, just today, there was a webinar on digital transformation in 2020. Uh, by the time you're watching this podcast, you'll have missed it, but you can always go to itpro.tv slash webinars, and you can see the webinars that have happened in the past, like the one that's happening right now, uh, and you can see any upcoming webinars that we have uh, and get a chance to watch those. Daniel and I just did one on threats in disguise. It was a lot of fun, like hidden uh, monitoring and pen testing devices and all. It's a good one to check out. Again, go to itpro.tv slash webinars, sign up for a free account. It's free. Free is in not costing money. Uh, and you can get in there and watch those. It is a lot of fun. And keep an eye out for new webinars coming down the line. We do have a handful that are coming up uh, in November and December, just scattered about because of the holidays. All right. Well, Justin, I'm uh, I'm out of stuff to make fun of today. I mean, I, I think we, we, we gave it a valiant effort. We volunteered Peter to have one of his fingers cut off and yes. tested to see if the, the Ubico uh, And that's device... a done deal. I put it in my to-do list. Yeah. Like, yeah. I mean, there, once it's in there, it has to happen. Uh, we may have to file, fill out some forms and get permission there. But other than that, we came, we saw, we made Technado. And I think we showed that uh, we don't necessarily need Peter. Fact. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> so <laughs> I right. guess we'll have to wait to see if he comes back. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, ladies and gentlemen, be sure to tune back in next week because our team that is at Microsoft Ignite will be back in studio. And so we should have all sorts of great, new, exciting stuff from them. Uh, an extra big thank you to Professor Joe Welch for being on the podcast with us. And for all you listeners, thank you for tuning in. Be sure to share IT, IT Pro TV as well as Technado with your friends. You know, we love to get more listeners. And if there's topics you want to hear about, reach out to us and let us know on social media and any other means of communication you can find. All right, well, that's a wrap for us. So signing off for Technado, I've been your host, Don Pazette. And I'm Justin Dennison. And we'll see you next week.